Namo Jasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Namo Jasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Namo Jasa Bhagavato Arahato Samasambuddhasa Udangdamang Sangang Namasang I come from a tradition where, when before we give a Dhamma talk, we just do this little chant. And this little chant is meant to be a reminder for you and for me that this is kind of not hanging on the street corner doing chit-chat. Something different's happening. And so it's meant to signal a time to be very attentive in a particular way. So in the same way that we take some time to sit in a way where we establish posture, when when listening to reflections on Dhamma, it's helpful to be um, attentive. Your body is relaxed and your attention is with your own sense of how things are. So um, the, the idea is, is is that when sometimes when we're listening to Dhamma, if we're listening in the right way, it can actually have a really um, deep resonance. But we need to know. And so you need to listen to your body and have your body tell you. But I speak extemporaneously. It's extremely rare that I... When we listen inwardly and our body relaxes and... and so when we know something is true, our body relaxes. And when we something we hear is kind of discordant or cuts across what we know to be true, usually we feel a contraction or a tightness. And I speak extemporaneously. I don't, I don't plan what I say. And I use my own personal life experience often as ways of illuminating what I'm wanting to talk about. But occasionally what happens is, is that I, I get a little bit off track. And the stuff that I'm saying is not, um, it's more about my own personal stuff than it is about Dhamma. So that you don't need to listen to. But if I ever, if I ever, if I ever speak in a way where I'm cutting across what you understand deeply to be the truth, then it's really important to know that it's, it's, it's important you come back to me about that stuff. Because, you know, we're setting up this circumstance as a... As a it's, it's not just street corner chit-chat. And your attention, your energy, your interest, your presence is of vital importance. It needs to be respected. And so we have to have a, a mutual agreement that... I will do my best to speak as clearly and as honestly and as authentically as I can. And I would ask that you do your best to listen with as much internal responsiveness as you can. What, what registers? What doesn't register? What doesn't register, let it go. If you have some resistance to something, check it out and see if the resistance is because it's something painful that you need to hear or something because it cuts across your, your sense of what is correct. And if you've checked out whether it's something that cuts across your deeper understanding of what is the truth, don't just let it go. You know, It's too important to create an atmosphere like this and then for me to have the opportunity to speak and to be cutting across what you understand to be true. So this little chant is meant to be an indication for each of us to listen in a very attentive way. You know, there might be things that are meaningful and help uh, allow confusion to be dispelled or more clarity to settle in. And so we can we can make use of that. 
And that's really what tradition and ritual can do when it's clear and clean and helpful, is it can signal we're entering into a, a special time now and make, make good use of it. It's not meant to become ossified and somehow very precious. It's meant to help us wake up. And so, you know, I just came from a, a conference. There were teachers from all over the world. The majority of people were from the United States. And these are, you know, the elders of many different lineages. And Noah Levine, who's the founder of the Dome of Punks, was there. He was part of the organizing committee. And most of the teachers of the Dharma punks were present. And this year was the first time ever that any of these teachers' meetings have had next-generation teachers there. You know, we've always had people in there, you know, a hundred years old, about to drop dead. <laughs> any moment, about to drop dead. <laughs> One of the lovely things about the punks is, is that, you know, they have a, a genuine appreciation for the essence, but they're not stuck to the form. And so there was all kinds of innovative ways of expressing, you know, gratitude or refuges or precepts or sharing of blessings in terms of song or other things. It was just incredibly refreshing. Anyway, the punks were there in force and had a, a noticeable impact as well as the next generation teachers. So I come from having spent four days with people who are teachers and monastics and leaders of communities from all over the world. And many of us have been working with not very many peers, so we work without a lot of other teachers near us. And so an occasion like this, where we've got four days of a saturated environment where we can talk about stuff that's of importance to us with other people who have committed 30 and 40 and 50 years of their lives to practice to its meditation and teaching has been really very nourishing. But one of the things that emerges from that is the importance of community and the importance of collaboration and the importance of meeting regularly and meeting in harmony. So Kate and I talked about me coming to this meeting before I went to this conference, and we had agreed that a useful topic would be on the topic of community. So one of the things that I feel is important is to, is to bring a sense of the whole community into our awareness. And so, you know, in this Dhamma Punks, most of the time you are lay people. You are people who have taught, taken monastic precepts or are not priests you are lay people. And yet there are monastics and there are priests who are also practicing. And we had monastics and priests at this conference. And I could see that when there is the ability for everybody to be there together and together to share on different topics, the richness and the depth and the breadth of what we have is different than when it's limited to a single sphere. So it was interesting to notice that. So within the kind of traditional framing of things, one of the, um, Bhikkhu Bodhi was there, and Bhikkhu Bodhi is one of the foremost translator scholars of the world in the Theravadan, Theravadan tradition. And he was talking about the difference between what it is to be a Buddhist and different skillful means to practice. And one of the things that it is to be a Buddhist, to actually take 
you know, the Buddha Dharma or the is to is to regard the Buddha and his teachings as something that you hold as important. So the classical definition of a Buddhist is somebody who takes refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. And so the Buddha is not, you know, a person who lived 2,500 years ago. The Buddha is this quality of awakenedness, this all-pervasive awareness which is ever-present. And the Dhamma is more than just the, the scriptures that were recorded. It's also the truth of the way things are. And the Sangha is more than just the individual people who feel an a kinship with Buddhist teachings. It's everyone who aspires to awaken. And so we go from the narrow into the wide. And when we're in a wide understanding of what taking refuge is, we can also see that the community or fellowship or the people who are interested in waking up have a tre- tremendous impact on our lives and what we do and how we relate to the world. So there's a story. Ananda was the Buddha's attendant. And Ananda was very devoted to looking after the Buddha and taking very good care of him. And, you know, he's it's kind of a sweet person. Tender, gentle, kind. And he went up to the Buddha one day and he said, you know, I think I got it all sorted out. You know, for me it's pretty clear, you know, that the community or our spiritual friends are half of the holy life. It's half of doing this work, of waking up, of waking out of suffering, of finding new ways, of new structures, of, of dropping old habits that no longer serve, of, of being able to live a good life. And the Buddha said, you know, Ananda, don't say that. You know, don't don't say that, Ananda. It's not like that. The Buddha said, the spiritual friends are the whole of a holy life. It's everything. And so when I look at the kind of challenges that each of us are facing, you know, the kind of pressures that we're under, the inundation of tasks, the responsibilities, the, the recognition of habits that we have that don't serve us any longer, or the, the willingness to move out of patterns of addiction, or the courage to move into recovery, you know, the, the willingness to start to open up to the potential of what it is to be an awake human being and to let go of the things that have harmed us and to work with the traumas that we have had to experience in our lives and release them from our bodies, to begin to forgive so that we are not burdened and held to the pains of our past. We cannot do this alone. It just absolutely is not possible. There's just no way. When we look at the kind of the, the, the deep sense of conviction and the materialistic values that we have in a society and consumerism and the kind of religion of science and the religion of consumerism and the, the unbelievable pressures that people are having to navigate, we cannot do it all alone. It's just not possible. We can't hold true to what we know to be true and navigate everything by ourselves. When we look at the kind of alienation that has been the result of the consumerism that we have and the materialistic society, the postmodern era where things have been reduced to their materialistic qualities, 
when we look at how people live in isolated housings and get in their cars and go from their cars to their workplace and back in their cars to their homes and, you know, and there's very little rub back and forth with the warmth and the connection and the eye contact with people who can see you, who are wanting to stop and really tune in to what's going on. You know, how is it for you today? You know, when you are actually with somebody and somebody says hello, you know, what, dif- what, what a difference it makes when they ask you how you are and they really want to know. They have time to know how you really are. So in the Buddha's teachings, there's the Eightfold Path, which describes the way of cultivating And each of these things are linked together. But from my perspective, when we put the Sangha as the hub of the wheel, all of the spokes emanate from that. Every aspect of the path comes out of a cohesive sense of community. And when there isn't a cohesive sense of community, when there isn't a fellowship, it's like a a wheel that's got missing spokes, you know? Or a wheel, it's got no hub, it just doesn't turn, it doesn't work, you know? So the challenge is, is is that, you know, for years I was living in community in England, and we had community, but the community was so dysfunctional, and so unsafe, and so full of challenging things, that it felt like the community itself, if you could survive the community, you really had to put together practice, (laughs) And for a variety of reasons, some of which I understand and some of which I don't understand, the sisters held together long enough to be able to address some of the dysfunction that we were dealing with in order to come into cohesiveness. And part of that is simply the result of, you know, being women in a very strongly patriarchal model where, you know, who we were and what we were doing really wasn't seen or valued or appreciated. So any person or people or group of people who are a minority in a larger culture that doesn't see them or value them or appreciate them or give them a similar legal standing or have them have the autonomy to be able to make their own decisions has to deal with a dynamic which is very challenging. And it's often the way people deal with that dynamic is the frustration that they experience for the system that they're in is directed to the people that they are, their closest people in that group that they share with, the sisters towards each other, you know. It's classic, you know, it's across countries, it's across ethnographic groups, it's across economic groups, it's across every kind of group. This is a dynamic that has been carefully described. So when we were able to look at that, we began to get a little bit more coherent. What I'm saying is is that it's not always sweet peaches and cream living in community. You know, so the last time I was here in Denver, somebody was asking me, so, you know, what is the greatest blessing that you've ever experienced in your life now 30 years on in meditations, over 30 years? And I said, community. And the same person asked, and what has been the greatest challenge you've experienced in all of these years? 20 years of monastic life and 30 years of meditation. And I said, community. And so what's important to recognize is that communities go through different cycles and sometimes it feels incredibly loving and safe and supportive and it's like exactly where you want to be. 
And sometimes it's like, just get me out of here. You know, this is totally unsafe and completely dysfunctional, and I don't want to have anything to do with it. But the problem is, is, is that if we don't hang together during the rough and tumble, we're constantly dismantling the ground that supports our ability to do the work that we need to do. And so what I could see was that some of the persistence and the conviction that brought me through many years of dysfunction in the monastic community was the conviction that the practice worked, that there would be a way to, to find a way through, and that in the end, the, what I was wanting to do, I was still able to do even when the community was challenging. But in the middle of that, there was a period of many years where I said, you know, what's happening is so um, much greater than my capacity. I need to leave. Because what was arising for me, it was like I didn't have the resource to deal with it. So I left. And when I left, I got more skilled, more resource, and the community did more work as a community, and people did more work individually. So when I came back, it was a very different situation. So certainly I'm not saying that you hang in, come hell or high water, even if it kills you. But certainly, you know, normally the sense is, is that, you know, the second that there's any kind of rub, it's like, I'm out of here. You know, instant Kleenex, instant noodles, instant community. Just add water, and there you have it. And then when it's gone, or when it's done, or whether you don't like the flavor, you want shrimp or you want vegetarian, you toss it out and you go in and get another one. But, you know, we're talking about the same kind of time frameworks of what it's like to cultivate the earth, you know, to grow an organic garden, you know. You work the earth and you put on compost every year. And every year the earth gets a little bit more fertile, and every time it gets more fertile it can grow more seeds, or the seeds feel nourished. And the same is true with community. So we need to understand that community going through cycles is normal, that sometimes it feels lovely and sometimes it that's normal, and that when we have the willingness and the capacity to stay with the process and begin to bring the tools to it, then what can happen is the challenges end up turning into compost. And through that, we begin to build something that really has a fabric that can hold. So when you're in a community of people who you trust, who have some resource and have a little bit of experience, you really can know that you don't have to do it all by yourself. You know? That if things are really tough that there are people around who are going to rally for you. You know, or when you get confused and you start looping and some of the stuff that you know is not helpful, but you don't have a way to stop it, there are people who can say, look, look, remember. Remember the beauty in yourself. Remember the goodness in yourself. What you're looping around is not the whole picture. So one of the important things that a community can offer is our ability to mirror each other's goodness. You know, how often do we feel connected to our own goodness? I remember I was staying at a Baigiri, which is a monastery in Northern California, and there was a young woman who was there, and we were close, and so I was, we were sharing and talking regularly. She told me a number of things about her own life, and she had had a lot of, you know, hard stuff that she'd lived with. 
And so I asked her if she would be willing to contemplate a certain contemplation, and she looked at me with such revulsion and disgust on her face. You know, you would have thought that I'd asked her to shovel out the pit toilet without any gloves on, you know. What I'd asked her was to consider her own goodness as a practice, to deliberately reflect on her own good qualities. So it's like, you know, we know everything that's wrong, you know. We can see everything that we haven't done good enough. We can see all our shortcomings. We can see all the bits that still need to have polish. We need the stuff that needs to be let go of. We can see our imperfections. We can remember our transgressions. We can see all the stuff that we feel bad about. How often do we reflect on our goodness? On the generosity of our heart and our courage to do this work. On our willingness to move across the habits that are comfortable into something that's not comfortable because we know what's not comfortable actually is more wholesome. How often do you feel the sense of joy of not having harmed somebody today? Or stolen, or lied, or cheated? How often do you reflect on the precepts that you actually keep? How often do you rejoice that today is yet another day without any substances in your system? And celebrate that your brains are clear enough to think straight. You know? So all of this stuff happens and you just don't pay any attention. And so what the community can do is say, wait, just stop, look. You know? There's tremendous goodness here. Tremendous And even if you're looping in stuff that's a little bit like this, that's only a very small part of the picture. And as a community develops trust, knows each other, gets beneath the surface, gets into one's other skin, we also have the ability to support each other to do the difficult work of bringing attention to the places that our minds do not want to do. To begin gently to attend to where the blind spots are. And to remember, to just notice that this is a blind spot, it needs care. Now, it takes tremendous sensitivity to be able to reflect to another person where their blind spots are. Incredible. You know, one of the things about living with sisters I mean, I don't know if it's unique to sisters, but it certainly was very present in sisters. So women are perceptive, and celibate women are unbelievably (laughs) perceptive. (laughs) So it took the community about 20 years or 25 years to figure out that the perceptions that we had about each other were not always helpful to share with each other. And that it took tremendous care and kindness and just really letting the person know that it was coming from care and kindness and friendship and our best interest in each other. Not because I knew or not because there's something wrong with you, but is it possible to look at this so that there's less suffering for you and for others? 
And so when a community can then function in that way, where it can hold the space to begin to start reflecting each other's blind spots, there is few things in the world that is more valuable than that. Because the nature of ignorance is that it simply does not see itself. That's its nature. And ignorance will co-opt any meditation technique, any scripture, any practice that it can wrap its hands on and use it to support its own means, which is to perpetuate ignorance. That's the way ignorance operates. It's committed to it. It's invested in it. And it's extremely successful in it. Ignorance is not stupid. (laughs) But when you have a group of people who are committed to waking up out of suffering, out of ignorance, who are committed to being free, and you see people looping around blind spots that they don't see, it's not compassionate to just let them loop. It supports no one to let somebody loop around something that they're not seeing. But it takes guts, it takes sensitivity, it takes friendship, it takes knowing your own intention, it takes trust and permission to begin to touch that stuff in a way that allows it to open up, be seen, and then begin to release. But what are we doing here if we're not doing that? You know? And if I cannot see my own blind spots, then I am dependent on somebody else pointing them out to me. So the community can function in an extremely vital role. But this is not like first grade practice. This takes a lot of care that the way we speak and the way we do that is actually for each other's well-being and benefit. Because you've experienced, and I certainly know, that you can give feedback or get feedback in a way which is so disturbing, it takes a really long time to recover from. And it's so disturbing, you can't hear a single thing that what the person is having to say. But just because it's hard and just because it's risky doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile trying to develop the way to do it. And we enter into challenging situations, you know, it's scary, you know, giving feedback to, to leaders or to the organizers, you know. And so we need to have ways or means to be able to speak honestly and with safety when it also has to be reflected back in ways that traditionally or hierarchically, that's not what's done. So one of the things that we do in a monastic community is we make a general invitation for feedback as a kind of ritual. We do that a few times a year. But what the sisters learned is is that this ritual, unless we have safety and ways where we can speak from our heart, has very little impact. You know, what we need are times when we can actually speak from our heart about, you know, how we feel things are going. And in that kind of a space... Nobody has seniority. There's no hierarchy. Everybody is absolutely on equal ground. 
Everyone has a right to speak, everyone has a right to be heard, and everyone has the opportunity or is invited to share, you know, what, how things are going, how they feel about it, and what they feel is important. It took us years to learn to do that as a community of sisters. We called them heart meetings. So building community is a talent. Some people are really good at it. Some are not so good at it. But when a community can begin to grow and to be built, you end up with something that starts to generate like a field or like a ground. So when the ground is fertile, it's not dependent on the individuals who have made it fertile. When a field is generated, it's not dependent on the individuals who have contributed to it. When a place has been a place of practice, like this yoga studio has been a place of practice, you can feel an atmosphere, something that's peaceful and settled, has gentleness and integrity in it. You have no idea who's been in this space, but you can feel it. It's in the space. It's not dependent on the people or that the activities are actually happening, but you can feel it. So learning how to cultivate community is an important thing. And it's not something that we learn in high school or college. And it's not something that's in the newspaper. You know? So it's something that we have to have an interest in and begin to figure out, well, if we're not getting the information on how to do it, how can we find out? So building community, learning how to look after each other, learning how to develop more trust, finding ways and means to be able to reflect each other's goodness, and carefully and with tenderness, seeing if there might be an interest and the permission to move in towards this more challenging stuff and to reflect maybe the things that are not being seen, the things that need to be opened up to. Now, sometimes we're touching into territory that is activating, you know? And sometimes one has a sense that what one is touching into is so big and that one doesn't have the skill or the resource to handle what might likely happen. So, you know, one treads very cautiously. So, my friend Gina Sharp is a... I just love Gina. I just love Gina. And Gina and Larry have been involved with the People of Colors Retreat. So, you know, one of the things about the Vipassana scene in the U.S. is it's predominantly white, predominantly middle class. And it's like, well, great if you're white and middle class. But, you know, what about everybody else, you know? And so they've been doing People of Color retreats. And, and there, was a, there was a retreat that Gina was invited on. And, and, and they, they wanted to start the meditation and start with the silence and then talk to each other about race and prejudice and all the rest of that. Gina, she says, you want to do that? I'm out of here. <laughs> I am not going to be here on a retreat where you start with silence and then you turn to each other and you talk about race and prejudice in a space that's totally not held, not facilitated. It's like you are, you, it's dynamite. And there's no holding for it. And I'm not going to be here to pick up the pieces and wipe off the blood afterwards. I'm out of here. Because <laughs> she knew how much pain there is around this topic. And that if you open it up in a situation that isn't 
extraordinarily and carefully held, you end up with a kind of display of emotions and pain and history and trauma. When it's not held properly, it can just be more activating, more re-traumatizing. So we also need to learn not only what needs to be touched, but what needs to be present in order to touch it. Because so many of us have a lot of trauma that we've lived through. And some of our blind spots are connected to the traumas that haven't released from our systems. And as we begin to reflect the blind spots, we touch into the traumas. And we need to understand this is no joke. It needs a tremendous skill and caring to open that up and let it release. Because it's there, it doesn't mean that we should ignore it. But it means that we need to touch it very carefully and tenderly. So, you know, one of the things that happened during this meeting was uh, the, the younger, the next generation teachers were asked to do a presentation for the group. And one of the things that happened was Vinny, who's one of the punks, he teaches in San Francisco, has been doing this for decades. It's called Crossing the Line. So he puts a tape down the middle of the hall and then reads out all these different categories of who you identify with or what kind of life experiences you've had. And, and if you feel an identity or a, a connection with, with that, you cross over the line. So you cross over. There was white or colored or Hispanic, Jewish. Jewish, there was two-thirds of the whole community walked <laughs> over the line. You know, you know who has had drugs or alcohol in their family or in their selves? You know, a lot of people crossed over the line. How many people had ever thought of committing suicide or seriously attempted it? A lot of the teachers crossed over the line. You know. These are the senior teachers of the country and of the world, you know. And it went on and on and on, and there's all kinds of stuff about, you know, different ways of being humiliated or disrespected or put down or dismissed or disregarded or abused, you know. So suffering is often the gateway of why we come into the practice or why it's so meaningful to us. And certainly there's an interest of transforming all of this so that it's no longer a kind of weight that we're carrying, you know, kind of a carcass around us. But it's the compost that allows us to see the beauty and the potential of what it is to wake up and the power of what it is to let go. To recognize that trauma is a physiological issue more than a psychological issue. And to recognize that the habits that we have picked up as a result of our trauma were our survival mechanisms, our coping strategies, because we didn't have any other resource. But as we open this stuff up, it needs care. You don't do this without care. Yeah. So community has enormous potential. Invaluable potential. And yet it is not easy much of the time making a commitment to show up, to help out, to support, 
learning how to have leadership structures that make sense, working together. You know, so this is the group that Kate works with, that she's the facilitator for, and yet sometimes she's away. And so how is it that you can support her when she's away? And how is it that she can support you so that you feel comfortable to do that when she's away? These are relevant topics for a group to consider. You know, what does that look like? And is there a way to talk about these things? You know? And is the structure that's happening the one that meets most people's needs? And if not, is there a way to talk about it? You know, so as a teacher, you know, I am a human being and I'm a practitioner. And so one of the problems that I'm perpetually having to deal with as a monastic is that people idealize me. They put me up on a pedestal. And then when they realize that I'm human, I come crashing down into the hell realms. And this is like normal, right? And so, you know, there's this sense that the teacher, the facilitator, has to be absolutely exalted and perfect and wonderful and completely accomplished and have no faults and make no mistakes and be clear and energetic and available at all times. Well, I have really bad news. <laughs> it ain't like that. And there ain't anybody who's like that. It just ain't happening. You know, so when we can recognize that, yeah, it's probably true that with 30 years of practice and 20 years of monastic life, there may be some things that I have to offer. You know, that might be true. But I am a human being with my own process and my own journey, and there are times when I cry. And there are times when I quiver. And there's times when my brains are just absolutely not functioning. And it's like, you know, that has to be okay for the teachers to also go through their own process. And to be able to ask for support. Not only to lead, but to practice. So what does that look like? And how can we do that in a way where we all grow? It's not like some grow at others' expense, but that we all grow. You know, what does it look like to move into something that is authentic and honest and genuine and really supportive of waking up? That's what community is about. Well, that's the potential for what community is about. And then our challenge is to take an accurate measure of where we're at and to see if there's things that we can do to support where we feel we'd like to be or how we'd like to move this forward. You know, so one of the things that was an interesting conversation in this conference was the on-the-cushion practices and off-the-cushion practices. Because again, in the Vipassana communities, there's a there's an emphasis that practice is about sitting on your butt, quiet, and not relating to each other. But how can you know somebody else if you're sitting quietly and you're not relating to anybody? And so as we start to relate to each other, is there a way where we can bring the qualities of meditation into the process of communication and relating? You know, they're not irrelevant questions. So people think, well, the practice is about sitting. It's not about setting up. It's not about cleaning up. 
<laughs> but check it out, you know? Is that really true? And what happens to the feeling of community when that is there and when that isn't there? What happens to the feeling of community when people come and help out? What happens to the feeling of community when people do service days together and work? What happens to the sense of community when people have potlucks or barbecues or hang out and watch a movie? You know? What happens to your feeling of the sense of each other when you get to know who you are in other contexts? And it matters what's happening for you. And there's time to find out how you are rather than some kind of a trivial, nonsense, you know, superficial, I'm fine, I'm fine. <laughs> so maybe enough for me to this night. So again, the encouragement is, is that when I speak, to listen with your body, not with your head, to pay attention to what feels true, and know that because your body opens and relaxes. To be very attentive when your body tightens and contracts. And use that as a, as, a, as a stepping stone to investigate. Is this because what I'm saying is something that there's resistance to exploring because it needs to be explored? Or because it's just like, no, this is just not right. And if you come to these things that are, this is just not right. This is absolutely not my deepest understanding of the truth then I would implore that you do not just sit on it. It is not helpful to just sit on something when you feel that something is absolutely not right. There has got to be a way of talking about it. So, I offer these four reflections, and I would invite everyone to stand up and... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.